Tarun, you've given your answer. Tarun's one of the first ones to give the answer there. Thank you, Tarun, for responding on the chat box. Um, I'm going to begin today's session. So for those of you who don't know me, I'm Meher Hora, and I'm going to be your host for the evening. We've got Tarun uh, from Delhi as well, who's joined. So thank you, Tarun, for joining us for this very exclusive masterclass. For those of you who aren't acquainted with him, I'm going to give you a short little introduction. Tarun is currently the founder-CEO at In This Action. It's a public policy do-tank. He's graduate from the Harvard Kennedy School with a master's in public administration and international development. Tarun is also an Obama Foundation Fellow and DRK Foundation Entrepreneur. Uh, he is an alumnus of the Teach for India Fellowship and member of the organization's inaugural cohort. A lot of big names associated to your name, Tarun. Um, I'm super excited for the session that we're going to go in for the next one hour. A lot to learn, I'm sure. And I really hope you're as excited as we are for our session today. Thank you, Mahesh. Uh, good evening, everyone. I was telling Mahesh that uh, it feels like a you know Monday evening uh, because of uh, you know uh, extended holidays. And uh, so, yeah, thank you for making time uh, on Wednesday evening uh, for a conversation. Uh, I hope over the next one hour, uh, I'm able to share uh, the intentional approach we've taken to kind of running a social enterprise at Indus Action. Uh, as the title goes, uh, you know, we've been inspired by this book uh, called Everyone's Culture. Uh, how to build a deliberately developmental organization. So yeah, look forward to share more. And uh, so the way we've structured this is, I'll just take about 10 minutes uh, to give you some bit of background uh, so that we're all on the same page in terms of uh, some of the uh, key ideas of, uh, you know, DDO, uh, deliberately development organization for short. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, Meher and, uh, you know, team have already shared some of the questions uh, you have you have during sign up, so we can take it up for majority of the time. I hope that's okay. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That sounds. Uh, you've actually taken over my job and told everybody. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so that eases my place out. No, no, that's perfect. So, uh, members, you have an idea of what to expect for the next one now. But before we kickstart with, uh, you know, Tarun's session, I will also engage you in a quick rapid fire, Tarun, just so our members can kind of get to know you a little better. Um, I hope that's okay. Very quick. Okay, fine. Shoot, shoot. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, let's start with the first question then. Um, one thing that makes you passionate about your work, Tarun? Uh, social justice, just the idea of social justice and uh, yeah. the fact that, uh, uh, you know, we are able to kind of commit to that uh, on a piece of paper called the Constitution. Yeah. Right. Okay. The one person you look up to the most? Dalai Lama. Wonderful. Uh, the first thing to your, that comes to your mind when someone talks about education? Citizenship or active citizenship. I love that. Um, okay, NGOs or social enterprises, if you had to make a choice? Uh, <laughs> a DDO, uh, no, I will say DDO <laughs> and, and both can be a DDO. So, yeah. Okay, perfect. Uh, thank you for those really quick responses. Um, members, I'm really I'm going to hand over the room to Tarun now. But before this, you can all start dropping in your questions on the chat box. We're going to mix up these questions with the ones that have already been shared with Tarun, like he mentioned. Um, we want to keep this super engaging and we want to keep this super conversational as well. So while Tarun is talking, if you have any questions, you can obviously uh, share them on the chat box. Raise your hands and we'll take them up as and when we go along. Um, Tarun, the floor is all yours. Please go ahead. Thank you again, Meher. 
thanks everyone. Um, so before I share my screen and you know get started on you know some of the DDO uh, you know facts and elements, uh, I just wanted to you know take a quick uh, you know temperature check from all of you. Uh, like I said, you know today's conversation is about you know how to build an aspirational culture. So I just wanted to quickly hear from you know some of you on uh, what is the organization that uh, you look up to in terms of an aspirational culture. So if you could dream, uh, you know, drop the name of the organization. It could be the organization you already work in, or you've worked in, or you are uh, you're you're kind of known. Uh, you know them as to be uh, a very aspirational culture. Uh, so yeah, if you could take a minute to you know drop the name of the organization that you believe has uh, an aspirational culture. We were seeing a couple of names come in. You got Netflix, HubSpot. Yeah, Netflix, HubSpot. Yeah. CSF. Give India. Okay. Okay, Teach for India by Guru. 30 more seconds. Let's bring in a few more names. Google. Okay, Observer Research Foundation. Google as well, Netflix. Okay, Arthin. That's good. Uh, I mean, it's good. UNICEF, Walt Disney, amazing. Keep them going. Um, so yeah, let's try and kind of unpack that. Like, you know, we've got a lot of interesting names, a whole spectrum uh, of you know, uh, digital and kind of online and kind of, you know, new generation companies like Google and Netflix. And you do have social enterprises and nonprofits as well, right? Think tanks like ORF, Central Square Foundation. Um, they were a few other, you know, social enterprises like Give India, uh, uh, platforms like Arthin, uh, Impact Guru, uh, interesting. So, so let's try and unpack that. Um, so what I'll do is I'll quickly share my screen uh, to take you through um, what I mean by uh, a DDO and how we've tried to apply that in this action. Can everybody see my screen? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So uh, a brief context about intersection. Our purpose uh, uh, is uh, to, in our generation time, you know, work on ending poverty. And uh, we believe that, uh, you know, this is not a long shot. Uh, because if you look at kind of you know China's history, or uh, if you look at the pace of poverty elevation in India in some states as well, um, so China was able to elevate a large uh, you know section of the population you know out of poverty over three decades. Um, if you look at the story of my home state as well, uh, you know Andhra Pradesh uh, was tagged along with uh, you know uh, as part of the acronym Bimaru states in early 90s. Uh, and in the last two decades, in fact, the last three decades uh, has had the fastest poverty elevation rate. Um, so it's very much possible. And so we believe that, uh, you know, we, as we grow into being a middle income country, uh, it, is in, it is imperative that this growth is actually equitable. Uh, and kind of, we are able to kind of lift almost 900 million to a billion people who are on the edge of the poverty line uh, into a more sustainable space. Um, that's that's only how you know we can grow further as a country uh, and and make kind of uh, development efforts sustainable. Uh, so our focused mission is we do this actually by enabling vulnerable families uh, sustainable access to legislated rights. There's already stuff mandated uh, in constitution uh, via rights like right to education, right to food, uh, right to maternity benefits, 
uh, right, to livelihood security. So there's already a constitutional framework to deliver social justice. Uh, what we do is we actually kind of build both the capacity on the civic side, which is you know active citizenship and families who are eligible, uh, and the state state capacity. So we kind of think ourselves as a do tank, which is trying to fill the bridge between both the sides. Um, and uh, there was a question around you know scale and purpose. So our you know mission really is to kind of scale the mission, not really scale the organization. Um, so our focus is you know can we really prove this at a scale of a million families and everything we learn in that sample size then then can become a playbook or could be codified and could be externally valid at uh, you know uh, at a state level and so that's really the idea we want to demonstrate this in a few states uh, where we do an end-to-end -end model where we are able to demonstrate what does zero poverty look like in say a kerala or tamil nadu or states which are almost on the margin of achieving that goal and what does it require on the government technology side, civic tech side? What does it require on organizing to make this happen? Uh, so to kind of really achieve this outer game, uh, what we call is it is important to get the inner game right because we're a small team of 50 people and we have really grand ambitions uh, to solve uh, kind of uh, this uh, you know grand mission. Uh, so the way we approach that is uh, to uh, think of uh, you know any enterprise as a deliberately developmental organization so let me unpack that word um, so it the founding belief or kind of the core belief of ddo uh, is that to kind of achieve anything on the outside uh, it is a natural consequence of actually developing the psychological self of every team member and employee um, so if you're deliberately development on the inside at an individual team uh, and uh, whole organization level that automatically manifests in how you engage with uh, your stakeholders uh, externally. It could be government employees, it could be your partners, it could be you know citizens themselves. Um, so that's the you know fundamental idea, and uh, the core to it is developing the psychological self. Uh, the core belief here is that you know adult development doesn't stop once you graduate from uh, you know a PhD program or you get your master's degree. Uh, or you know clear undergrad so we're constantly uh, in a space of development and uh, we kind of operate at three levels of mind uh, and uh, you know most times one of the minds dominates uh, and this is kind of a progression uh, so the socialized mind uh, is where majority of uh, majority of us are and the next stage is kind of level four which is a self-authorizing mind or self-authoring mind and kind of level five is a self-transforming mind um, and like I said, this is uh, the work of Lisa Lahi and uh, uh, Bob Keegan, who are adult development specialists at the Graduate School of Education uh, at Harvard. Um, so what happens when you go evolve from you know, one level of mental complexity to the other is what happens for us as adults is you know, we are able to take greater responsibility for our thinking and feeling. Uh, we can actually retain more layers of information. We can crystallize different you know, pieces of knowledge uh, and actually look at a problem from you know multiple perspectives uh, and actually think much further uh, so we're not just thinking about the next quarter next year uh, the next three to five years but we're actually able to extrapolate out uh, kind of the current events uh, which we are reacting to uh, out to a decadal frame uh, so that's really what happens at the higher levels of the mind uh, you know before i get into kind of you know briefly uh, you know explain the three minds so i'll give you quick examples of uh, you know, what does a, uh, you know, self-authorizing mind look like? Say uh, a really high functional CEO uh, of a business startup can, you know, look like a self-authorizing mind. You know, think Bill Gates, think, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, 
you know, people who have a clear idea of what they want to accomplish in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, uh, they're, they're able to kind of, you know, authorize their will to achieve that. Uh, in uh, this could be said, it could be sports as well. Like it could be somebody like Serena Williams, uh, you know, think of all the goats uh, and, you know, it, you can have uh, them in the bucket of self-authoring mind. A self-transforming mind is uh, an individual who's able to uh, kind of, you know, elevate themselves uh, and kind of synthesize multiple ideologies. You know, think of the greatest leaders of a generation, uh, you know, Nelson Mandela, you know, Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, Dalai Lama, uh, Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, so that's really kind of only about 1% of adults really get to a self-transforming mind. And uh, you will understand why as you see kind of the definitions of the three minds. Uh, so very broadly, socializing mind is, uh, you know, you're trying to work your way around the world uh, with a socialized framework. And if you have friends, family, manager, peers, uh, and you're trying to kind of, you know, choose your set of options, uh, choose your set of actions based on your loyalties and ideologies uh, of these relationships. And what you care most is being liked and respected. Uh, and then that's totally fine. Like we all kind of, you know, uh, at a certain stage in our adult life, uh, do operate dominantly with socialized mind. Um, and like I said, the next stage is self-authoring mind where you are in charge, like though you have all these, uh, you know, impulses from, uh, you know, around you, friends, family, peers, etc. But you actually have your own set of rules and beliefs and you're able to take stands for them saying that, okay, this is my value. And I want to authorize it. And, and this is how you kind know, of I will act. I'll act in consonance with kind of my values, not kind of the values of you know, the group I have to be liked by, be respected by. Right. Uh, so this is where you kind of you know, elevate yourself to uh, the next stage. Uh, and, and keep in mind that this is what your dominant personality is. Like at any stage, we have percentages of all three. Uh, but it's like to be at that stage, it means like, you know, as an instinct, you're working in, in that stage. Uh, Self-transforming, like I said, is you're actually aware of the limits of your own ideology and your own personal authority. So you might have a very strong belief that this is how the world needs to work. This is what I'll bring to the world. These are the values I'll express. But you're able to include other ideologies and perspectives as well, which are fully contradictory to yours, right? So you're able to actually hold two contradictory ideas in your head uh, and actually still have the ability to function. Um, and uh, you're very open to idea of having a weakness, uh, and you're able to enable spaces where people are able to express their vulnerabilities uh, and, and make it a truly inclusive space. Um, so that's a brief on the three minds. And hence, kind of the approach we can take to development is either the traditional approach where we have a manager who knows it all and who is kind of uh, the harbinger of growth and development for each one of us. Or we kind of, you know, pivot that and, you know, actually enable a growth culture where the definition of a growth culture is everyone every day works on developing themselves, others, and the organization to achieve obviously breakthrough performance and become better versions of themselves. So in a growth culture, limitations, mistakes, and failures are the most powerful raw materials for growth because they can reveal the most limiting aspects of your mindset. Uh, so this is really important. Each one of the bolded words uh, is kind of really core to you know, what a DDO is and how to approach it. Um, so I'll maybe spend more time on this as we get questions. Um, but the everyone part is important. The everyday part is important. You know, becoming a better version of ourselves. Uh, and, and not just one person, but literally everyone. And at different levels. We're working on ourselves. We're working on our teammates. Uh, that collectively will help kind of work on the organization, which eventually will lead to the consequential effect on the outside. 
second bit, like I said, is, you know, a lot of times uh, there's a lot of literature on how we need to focus on our you know, strengths and forehand. Uh, but the game here is to also focus on your backhand uh, to actually recognize that, like, look in a growth culture, it's important to bring up whole selves. And which is means that, you know, it is important to build, bring, uh, you know, the vulnerable self as well. And then typically a lot of cultures don't have enough space to, you know, bring in that side of yourself. And, and then a lot of energy goes into, you know, playing to a different kind of person uh, that you really not are. And where you're trying to, you know, hide your limitations, mistakes and failures uh, in order to be this aspirational person that the culture wants you to be. So how can you build a culture where that part of you is also acceptable and, uh, and there's space to work on that backhand. And uh, the framework through which that, is done is there are three elements to a DDO and uh, you know think of this as like a three-leg stool all three are important like one of them is small like you know the, the stool really doesn't stand um, the edge is what I said the backhand uh, easy way to remember this is edge is kind of the backhand you know home is kind of like the forehand what you're comfortable and kind of the safe zone and groove is just the practice uh, of you know how you do it so edge is a challenge side home is a support side and uh, you know, groove is the uh, habit side. So I wouldn't go one by one. I'll just pick, you know, uh, with an edge, you know, groove and home, you know, one thing which is really important. Um, so edge, like I said, it's the challenge side. It's on working on your backhand, your developmental edge, you know, taking risks to overcome them. So one principle I'll stress on, I've already mentioned that the core belief is that adults can grow as well. Uh, but the really core, uh, you know, belief is that, you uh, you know, weakness is actually a potential asset uh, and, you know, an error is actually an opportunity for growth for, uh, you know, individuals and for teams. Uh, likewise, on Groove, it's about the habits of practice and how can you do it on a regular basis. Um, and, and one principle I'll mention here is, uh, you know, when something is working perfectly, it is a time to blow up and move to the next level. Uh, it is a time to experience psychological pain that leads to new growth in an environment of trust and care. So this is actually very counterintuitive. Like when something's working, we don't want to tinker with it and we want to keep that process uh, or, uh, you know, system of working going. Uh, but here, like it's the opposite. Like the expectation is that like, you know, to go to the next level, you kind of have to give up your ideology or commitment to, you know, that level of system. And which means it'll be painful, uh, which means a part of you will resist kind of accepting that. And, and that's where actually it is in that space, actually growth happens. And, and finally, uh, in terms of home, uh, one key idea uh, that I'll mention is that, uh, you know, meritocracy of ideas uh, is important and, uh, you know, not, you know, rank is, uh, is how you drive a culture. So where the best ideas come from should be not correlated to, you know, who's the highest paid person in the room. Uh, you know, there's something called the hippo culture. Uh, it is the opinion of the highest income uh, of the person in the room. Uh, so that shouldn't be the case and it should really the, be the merit of idea. Uh, merit of the idea and for that like you need a home culture where everybody can speak their mind everybody feels safe enough to speak their mind uh, the view of conflict is very generative a view of authority and leaders is also very uh, you know generative um, so yeah these are kind of the opening notes i wanted to kind of leave everybody with and uh, maybe what i'll do is i'll share some examples uh, you know from in this action uh, uh, kind of experience uh, through the questions but for now, I'll just pause and, you know, stop my sharing. Well, thank you, Tarun. I think this definitely sets a lot of context. And uh, one of the questions that we got a lot while we were taking in registrations was about DDO and how it kind of sets apart from the other organizations. So this definitely helps over there. 
Um, we've got a very interesting con uh, question from Sindhu uh, on the chat box. Um, Sindhu, do you want to actually unmute yourself and ask that? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. So Tarun have worked in the development sector before we had a chat over email as well. And just coming from that space and context, I think in the short term or even in the long term, building a social enterprise takes a lot of intrinsic motivation, right? Because you're always chasing this sort of pipe dream stuff that you want out there. Um, how would you say organizations can augment this intrinsic motivation within uh, the team that works with them, especially again, as somebody who's worked with the government, so many times there are so many factors that are out of your control. So how do you help your team do that A and B in general, how do you think organizations can do that? It's a brilliant yeah, no question, Sindhu. Uh, I totally uh, kind of accept what you're saying that, um, uh, you know, there are, especially, you know, uh, you can't, in development sector, unfortunately, you know, you can't throw resources at a problem uh, because one kind of, you know, you don't have financial resources, uh, you know, it's not funded by, uh, say, you know, as uh, riskier capital that, you know, business startups have. Uh, so you're constrained, obviously, by financial resources, and, and hence you have to innovate around that constraint. And um, the other resources is authority or power as well, like, you know, you're constrained by that as well. So you, you neither have, you know, you can neither can you throw financial resources at the problem, nor can you throw authority at the problem. Uh, and uh, so the way I see it, and, and this is what we work intentionally in the team as well, uh, and what is within our control are obviously the inputs, right? So we can, you know, put together a best version of a plan and we could try and kind of, you know, take high, and it's ultimately a hypothesis, right? So even kind of our 1 million and kind of, you know, can we give access to 1 million families to a set of rights and that, will alleviate them irreversibly out of poverty is a hypothesis, right? So one way to reduce the stakes of, you know, work is to actually kind of, you know, acknowledge that, you know, we are all testing out a hypothesis. Like it's not kind of, uh, you know, something that, uh, you know, will event eventually happen and it is deterministic, et cetera. Just framing it as a hypothesis, you know, opens the field up for learning, right? So people know that, okay, like, you know, it's like a scientific experiment, like things can go in many ways, right? And we're testing out what we believe is, a working hypothesis and that also provides space for iteration and so once you have that you know hypothesis once you have a plan to test the hypothesis or work the hypothesis one thing to acknowledge is that you know what we have in our control is inputs right so what you want fidelity as a part of the process whether it's groove or whatever you name it in the organization like people's full commitment and you know full integrity uh, to the process of inputs um, and uh, you know a set of you know, from once you go from inputs to outputs, like they, they, you will have a set of, you know, variables that will come in. So as far as possible, if the input to output cycle is within the organization, then you have, we have to take full ownership for even the outputs as well. So, you know, for example, help, the number of helpline calls every day is, is an output, but of course there are dependables there, you know, there are dependence on a few vendors, there are dependence on actually the helpline traffic coming in, etc. Uh, but what we at least try and take, uh, you know, full ownership for uh, is certain set of, you know, quality metrics for outputs. Um, and then we acknowledge that the output to outcome leap uh, is, you know, is very dependent on environmental factors. It's dependent on the government, it's dependent on, you know, active citizenship, it's dependent on the state that we're working in because, you know, civic engagement is very different in Karnataka versus say UP uh, or say Jammu and Kashmir because there are structural factors which influence civic engagement in these different states. So, uh, so what is important there is for the performance management systems then to be you know accommodative of these you know differentiating factors. So not to judge uh, you know kind of a performance in 
know, Kashmir with the same kind of, you know, rule or a stick uh, or uh, with, you know, a performance in Karnataka, right? A performance in, say, Assam with the same uh, kind of yardstick as, you know, UP and Bihar. Uh, so I think uh, they're having a little bit of, uh, you know, wide uh, range of, you know, contextualization with how you kind of measure performance, how you validate performance uh, is, is important uh, for, you uh, Know, individuals to feel that they're you know moving forward and growing uh, so often like you know if it's just inputs and outputs like people also feel like hey like you know maybe i'm mastering things that i'm in my control but i'm make am i making a real impact on the world outside so which is why it is important to keep have a focus on outcomes as well though a lot of stuff is not in our control uh, it's that kind of outcome commitment which you know helps us take risks as well helps us influence people on the outside helps us really test our values as well um, um so yeah that's that's how we've tried to uh, figure a balance um, but like you rightly said it requires a lot of intrinsic energy uh, you know when you get knocked down and you don't have you know money and power in your hand to actually make that immediate impact um, yeah love what you said about uh, just being just the outcome commitment 100% agree i'll also pitch a little bit for the development sector and say that um, i i think it builds an inherent resourcefulness in you that having a lot of money and throwing authority at problems doesn't really give you so uh, great for problem solving thank you so much sindhu and uh, tarun for that for that bit on you know just being patient and kind of looking at things at a larger perspective and not just you know kind of looking at it on a smaller short term uh, thing um we've got a couple of more questions coming in on the chat box uh, natasha kind of brings it back to the ddo uh, segment natasha would you like to unmute yourself and ask the question sure thanks maher hi tarun um so my question was yeah i'm taking it back to a little bit more of tarun's own personal journey and this intersection i had asked another broader question earlier when i participated so we'll come to that later but just as you were talking i was very curious because a lot of it can seem very abstract right so i would love to know very practically what are some of the elements that you have found the most challenging and i'm sure it's different in every organization but for you what has been the hardest element of it to implement and what have been the tools and practices perhaps you have found very effective that you have implemented uh, that helped those challenges and the second part of the question is you know as the leader of the organization how have you been able to track so much of this is mindset so much of it is intangible yeah. so how do you actually track whether your whether your organization is going in the right direction to becoming a ddo thanks 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 natasha once again a great question so i'll quickly answer the second one so uh, i mean the um, there is an organization called the developmental sprint uh, i think uh, the developmental edge sorry td so that is able to translate uh, the work of lisa and uh, uh, bob keegan uh, into a, a annual culture survey so we administer that as an organization uh, and it throws up kind of you know your scores um so there isn't an ideal score so basically what uh, is interesting in that survey is on home edge and groove uh, every member of the team kind of articulates uh, what's our current state on, on the different sets of questions and what is the desired state so you know clearly it's actually like you know a lot of internal benchmarking obviously desired state is very aspirational on a scale of 5 you know, everybody is saying you know on this particular question that you know leaders have to express their vulnerability we need a 4.5 and right but we are at 3.3 Uh, so it really throws up statement by statement uh, you know where do you stand and uh, so in i mean as far as data speaks uh, you know uh, where intersection has been the lowest on is surprisingly the group 
So my hypothesis going into that survey was like, you know, our edge is going to be low, right? We're good on home. Like, you know, we all, uh, you know, uh, uh, respect psychological safety. We try and bring the whole selves. That I think will be high on. Uh, and I was kind of surprised to see that, you know, uh, you know, Groove was actually where the lowest was. And what we learned from the team there was, you know, they have scores across multiple organizations. And typically it's Groove actually, you know, across globally that organizations struggle with. So it was validating that, okay, like, you know, we're not in a unique position. Uh, and because intuitively, I think we get home and edge in the sense that, you know, we all of us need a home, right? And it's great if we can have a home space at office as well, so that we don't have to be a different person that intuitively everybody can, you know, get and intuitively can express saying that, look, you know, if somebody is violating a psychological safety with an office space and it's getting to the edge of, you know, being say unsafe or, you know, toxic, like we at least have some intuitive, um, uh, you know, markers uh, and likewise on edge as well. So we kind of know when we're being pushed on the edge and, you know, what space is required to work on our backhands and when do we feel safe enough to admit our mistakes, etc. So home and edge kind of uh, are intuitive and, you know, maybe come naturally. That's been my experience. Uh, Groove is actually, you know, because of the ritualistic nature or because of the repeated nature of, you know, building habits. So is the painful one, right? And that I've seen as well. And what it means is it calls for a certain degree of you know, self-discipline, organizational discipline. And, you know, whether it be it a team sport or, you know, whether it's in running organizations, this is not something all of us enjoy, right? So we want our freedoms, we want our autonomy. But if a coach comes up and says, okay, 10 rounds, uh, you know, around the park, you know, we were starting off with a warm-up. So, uh, but everybody wants to get to the game, right? So, so I think the practice part definitely um, uh, is the toughest. And I have struggled as well at Indusaction to institutionalize a set of, you know, practices. Uh, we believe that we are in a knowledge economy, like at Intersection, what we're trying to do is obviously be a policy implementation organization, right? The fundamental unit of our work is actually, you know, how do you take, you know, what is in the mind of a citizen, especially vulnerable citizen, and how do you represent that voice uh, in, say, uh, at the table with policymakers or the authority figures? So this is, there's this bridge that is very long, and we're trying to, you know, reduce the, you know, uh, distance of that bridge. And in many ways, like it's it's a job of you know collecting the right information and translating it, uh, and and being kind of diplomatic through the whole process, and uh, and and managing that conflict of uh, you know what uh, the person authority sees versus the citizen is actually experiencing. Um, so what I've always considered as important, uh, you know, to build that kind of you know uh, detective skills or translator skills or you know diplomatic skills is the ability to reflect as a practitioner. So we do have some practices uh, which we've institutionalized. Uh, which where you can you know reflect asynchronously, uh, which is like you know every Thursday we kind of have uh, a team reflection sheet and where we all kind of you know uh, you know log in uh, you know what we've learned from the week. Uh, it's an asynchronous way to capture and you know solidify our knowledge on a weekly basis. And then we have synchronous platforms. We have a Monday morning call and, and a, you know Friday morning uh, kind of team call. So these are spaces to actually kind of lift up you know some of the key experiences. Uh, you know, bright spots or challenges. And here is where people can learn synchronously by actually, you know, talking to each other. Um, so these three platforms, like, you know, for a while, like they were often. And uh, so I was really kind of pushing kind of the edge of like, you know, people intrinsically coming to these platforms, but we used to get stuck at you know, 70, 80% attendance. Uh, and I was like, yeah, I think like, you know, we need a you know full team culture here. So in the last, uh, you know, six months, we've tried to make this a non-negotiable thing to do. And so it's been tough, like you obviously get a lot of pushback saying, you know, does it kind of, uh, you know, take away the value of it being intrinsic, like are you pushing down a practice which, you know, people are 
uh, not necessarily fully committed to. Uh, so it's a negotiation, uh, you know, as adults we are going through. Uh, but it's been tough, and I recognize there's a tension between, you know, I guess, you know, freedom and I guess, you know, responsibility or autonomy and accountability. Uh, so balancing that through, you know, set of habits and you know, institutionalized practices has um, been a challenge as a leader. Yeah. It's tough to be a bad cop. It's easy to obviously be the you know liked and respected good cop. Yeah, I think always is. It's always the grass is greener on the other side for sure. <laughs> um, Tarun, you know we've spoken about a lot about organizations that are centrally looking at a social perspective uh, and are looking at a social impact. Um, I want to ask you, and I think a lot of our members also had this question: was um, you know for organizations that are already established in the corporate sector. Um, how do they incorporate a social enterprise ideology and you know how do they kind of go about that because that's a wave that a lot of people kind of want to follow right now but what would be your thoughts on you know how one can look into this yeah yeah one thing a uh, really good question so the first as i read the question the first thought that uh, you know i had was uh, if all of you haven't heard about b corp uh, there's an organization called b corp um, which has um, uh, an impact assessment for businesses. Um, so I just shared a report of you know Patagonia, yeah. um, but if you look at the sample assessment, uh, what uh, you know B Corp basically does is it has this framework of questions where you know any motivated corporate uh, you know could uh, think about uh, a certain set of uh, you know questions uh, you know related to making a social impact. So it could it is on domains of you know governance, uh, workers, community, and environment. So you know for example you know, how visible are your balance sheets uh, to your workers and, uh, uh, you know, how, what percentage other than the owners uh, uh, kind of of equity of the companies owned by the workers. Um, right. And, uh, you know, how do you uh, kind of, you know, manage for diversity of, you know, recruitment uh, from, uh, from the community that you serve um, in what is your civic engagement and giving. So if you can kind of see Patagonia's report as well and, and this website, uh, there are a set of sample questions as well. So I think that's a good start. Like, you know, you can do a baseline very quickly as a corporate uh, and, you know, get a baseline impact score. And uh, there are obviously tons of examples of, you know, how Unilever, Patagonia, Ben & Jerry's, like a lot of good case studies and uh, corporates, which over the last 10 years have had a renewed consciousness and have, you know, intentionally made the choice to, they all started, it's I think a 200, the baseline is a 200 score and most people started in 40 to 60. Uh, and, you know, over the years, you know, Patagonia, I think in the sample score is about 107. So over a period of time, they've been on this journey to in, improve uh, their social footprint. Um, so I think, yeah, this is a very methodical, uh, you know, way for a corporate to approach its social sensibilities and become kind of closer to kind of having a triple bottom line. So and that's, I guess, now the, uh, you know, uh, mantra and the leadership that at least some organizations, uh, I, mean, I used to work with, uh, Unilever and since I left like you know Paul Pullman has been on this evangelical drive almost uh, for triple bottom line and you know making environment a key you know part yeah. of the profit narrative yeah yeah I think that's definitely a lot of organization changing their voice on the environment uh, aspect as well um, I think this is a good way for at least companies to start looking into this aspect and see how they want to move. I want to ask you now on the individual aspect. Um, you know, a lot of people want to shift to the development sector and want to do something uh, with a social impact. So what advice would you have for somebody who doesn't have any prior uh, experience in this sector and would want to make that switch as well? Like, how does one kind of start about and anything that you need to keep in mind as well? Yeah, yeah. 
No, I think it's a really important decision uh, because uh, it's very hard to go back. I know once you've kind of made that decision, it's it's very hard to undo that decision. At least, uh, I mean, I've seen uh, you know friends of mine do kind of you know come into social sector and go back, and and they've had a difficult time you know going back. Uh, so in that sense, it's a very important kind of career decision. So uh, uh, you know, given that it's such a key decision, you know, one way to kind of reduce the risk of the decision is actually volunteer a lot. You know, find actually like you know, instead of being something uh, that is you know aspirational that you've heard to friends, actually volunteer yourself. And you know, if you like an organization, you know, go ask. You know, if you could volunteer with them, if you could shadow them, and there's a lot of such experiences. And I think with you know more employee engagement. Uh, corporates themselves are opening up you know employee engagement opportunities so that's i think a good start uh, uh, to uh, you know volunteer and the next level is uh, you know organizations now have secondments as well uh, you know they have social sprints uh, you know whether it's consulting firms or uh, even kind of big four as well they are willing to kind of uh, you know provide you a 3 to 6 month engagement uh, to actually second it an ngo uh, and in some cases are one one to two year sabbatical as well i know tata Uh, does this where for the mid level leadership like they expect them uh, to possibly do a one two year stint with a non profit as well so that they can pick up general management skills and leadership skills uh, i think these are all good steps uh, you know if you don't want to you know do something abrupt like you know some of us were foolish enough to do uh, where you know uh, after 3 years of unilever i just said okay lock stock barrel let me do teach print a fellowship and if things don't work out i'll go back to corporate but i have never gone back Uh, i think that's definitely a sharper change uh, i didn't think it through it just went with an impulse but you know having had the benefit of hindsight i'd say uh, i think it's not a scalable model it luckily worked out for me uh, <laughs> but i don't think it's you know scalable for you know individuals uh, so i think yeah i definitely advise a, a more calibrated approach to really find your fit as well so because development sector is also huge there are a lot of non profits uh, and what i worry about is obviously individuals coming with a lot of passion and good intent and them actually being kind of you know disappointed as disillusioned by the organization or the culture and the organization is not representative of the opportunities in the sector and what the sector stands for um so i fear that a lot um, and uh, so yeah so i mean it's good to take a calibrated approach and eventually when you feel like okay i have really figured out you know what are the values i want to express in the world and within kind of my role in corporate i'm not able to say you know for me it was clear like i think justice is what really called out to me and i felt that you know i might create more jobs at unilever and uh, but i didn't feel like you know i was truly responding to you know my uh, you know deeper drive for justice uh, or you know social justice so so i said okay look i i think like i need to work on you know education you know primary public goods like in education health and social security if i really care about justice uh, so so that was kind of the moment for me uh, yeah and uh... few years down the line it's all worked out for you tarun uh <laughs> however you said like in hindsight uh, you had a better idea and i think definitely goes for saying that it has to be i think people just have to go with a lot more open mind without any inhibitions when they kind of looking at exploring the sector as well um asmita has a question asmita would you like to unmute yourself and ask uh, regarding the culture i think there was something sure thank you ma'am um I, i think it's a fairly straightforward question provided i've understood what you were explaining about edge and home but um my my concern is mostly to do with how one can identify how much of a challenge or edge the home or the culture of support can handle um this to me is is a big challenge and i would love to hear your thoughts on it yeah a brilliant brilliant question smita so 
uh, yeah, we're, we're not kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, professionally trained counselors or therapists and, uh, you know, there's a limit to how much, uh, and we're not, each one of us is managers on, is also not, you know, professionally certified coach as well. And that's something, you know, we have acknowledged and we kind of, uh, you know, uh, know the boundaries of. And so one of the things, at least as a policy that we have is uh, to obviously have, uh, you know, mental health as a core priority of the org culture. And uh, when we feel that, look, it's beyond kind of uh, the manager's repertoire or skills. Um, so it is kind of, uh, you know, mutual duty of both uh, the team members uh, overall. It's not just manager-manager dynamic, like I said, like it's actually a team dynamic. It's to go out and say like, hey, like Tarun, I think, uh, you know, you seem to be struggling what's up. And if my conversation with somebody on the team doesn't work out, uh, to be able to say that to a friend saying, hey, like, do you want to take professional help? Uh, and, you know, I have these, you know, set of resources. And the way as an organization we enable that is uh, the profession development elements we have on a monthly basis for about 2,000 rupees. It's flat for everyone. So it's 2,000 rupees, uh, you know, whether, uh, you know, you're a CEO of the organization or you're an intern or an associate. Uh, so you can, um, uh, you know, deploy that for a mental health session as well. So, you know, if you were to take two therapy sessions, you know, both of those, uh, you know, if uh, it's within that range. And you know, in some cases, we've made exceptions as well. Sometimes the cost of therapy is higher. And so managers do have the discretion to say like, hey, like, you know, I want to spend the 24000 in the year, you know, not across, you know, 12 months. And I want to spend this in the next six months and really work on this uh, with a coach or with a therapist or a counselor. And uh, so that's, um, of course, we have, uh, you know, health insurance as well, if it's, you know, beyond even therapy and if it requires you know, psychiatric intervention and, you know, other forms of health, uh, there's medical insurance for that. But uh, like you said, I think there are limits to what organizations can do uh, because a lot of the factors are, uh, you know, social. Uh, a lot of the triggers are, you know, at a you know, family and society level, which can't be controlled by the organization as a whole. But what the organization can do is within its resources, you know, provide uh, a reasonable insurance and financial support system uh, and, and that kind of nudge and encouragement to actually kind of not uh, you know, take mental health topic uh, uh, as a taboo out of the equation. So make it commonplace for you know, people to talk about the therapy experiences, people to kind of come out and share that, hey, like, you know, and this is something uh, I try and role model and like, uh, and uh, I encourage my team members to role model as well. Like, I'm very open on my you know, Thursday reflections about whenever I've taken help uh, to uh, kind of process my difficult emotions with a therapist or have sought help uh, with, uh, you know, a marriage counselor. So these are things like my team members know. And uh, a lot of other team members, uh, you know, have been, you know, bolder and more vulnerable in, you know, putting themselves out there. So that I think also creates a space saying that, okay, like, you know, this is not a, uh, you know, taboo thing to do. Yeah. I hope that answers the question. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Asmita. Um, there are a couple more questions but from what we received when people were registering with us. Uh, this is something, again, on the larger enterprise perspective, you know, how social enterprises is something where we understand it's, it's, a, prop, it's a revenue-making sort of an enterprise, right? But they're advocating for a certain impact to be created. Um, are there any such more, uh, you know, differences that you can kind of set apart a social enterprise and a for-profit private business as well? Like besides the advocacy, is there something else that we look at as well? Right, right. Yeah, I think a few. Uh, I think one is, uh, of course, like I mentioned, uh, you know, risk capital, right? So one of the big differences is, I think, in a social enterprise, 
you know, you're trying to solve a problem once, uh, you know, uh, I'll explain that, you know, versus I think, uh, you know, in, uh, in, sorry, you know, in a non-profit or development sector organization and social enterprise, not necessarily the incentives or the capital uh, are towards solving the problem, you know, once for all. Uh, so, you know, let's take, you know, vaccines as an example, right? So vaccine is a public good. In an ideal world, you know, just like it, it happened with Jonas Salk and uh, uh, the, uh, you know, polio vaccine, like it should have been open source, right? So Jonas Salk solved the vaccine for polio and it was open source and he didn't make any billions out of it. And uh, you know, that's how, you know, polio got solved, um, uh, you know, more rapidly than it could have. Vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, like, obviously, you know, there are, uh, a set of private companies who hold the IP for vaccines right now. And uh, in, in spite of, you know, some of them actually being largely public funded, you know, haven't kind of, you know, opened up the, uh, you know, IP rights. So that's one key difference. I think uh, the difference in ideology around, you know, open source and IP uh, is how you treat uh, kind of intellectual property. Uh, and I think, you know, in a typical social enterprise or development organization, the attempt is like, look, you know, this is a complex problem. We'll solve this for once. And if we solve it, like, you know, we will make kind of the code open source, you know, whether it's an algorithmic code or it's a playbook of how need, things need to be done. So I think that I see as a fundamental difference. And uh, so that actually, like, I mean, being on this side, actually, I feel like it's a cool way to play the game because, uh, you know, I'm not worried about like, okay, like, you know, if I, uh, you know, solve something, like, how do I protect it? Like, how do I let not others copy it? Like, I'm actually liberated by the fact that I just need to solve this problem once and then, then people can, you know, easily kind of replicate, copy it. Uh, it's a, I feel a very exhilarating, liberating feeling to have. So that's one. And I think the second, uh, and of course, uh, there are nuances to it. Like, you know, uh, you know, people might argue that, you know, how will you fund you know, future R&D and, you know, don't profits and, like serve that need of you know, funding future R&D. So we can get into debate on that, but my, I am clearly on the open source side. <laughs> and hence, kind of, I work on this side. Uh, the other, I think a difference in ideology is, I think, the bar for, uh, you know, uh, I guess, uh, you know, for-profit businesses is do no harm. Like the ethical code is like, you know, we need to operate at the edge of do no harm, right? Google also says like, look, you know, uh, you know, as long as our engines, you know, do no harm, like that's the bar. Uh, whereas I think the bar for social enterprise is like, uh, you know, as an ideology, like, look, everything has to be net positive, right? So every step of the way, like even your, you know, uh, environmental footprint, like everything has to be net positive. So I think there is a kind of delta there, do no harm is probably here and you know, net positive is here. In my mind, once again, I'm biased uh, towards social enterprises. So it's a very different ethical bar, right? So, yeah. and, and everything flows from that ideology. So if you're saying uh, my work has to be net positive, uh, then uh, you over, your choices are oriented to always kind of make net positive choices. If you're saying do no harm, like, okay, I'll push like, you know, Facebook to the edge of democracy. Like, you know, oh, I'm not doing any harm because now I don't take, want to take a view on, you know, Capitol Hill attack because that's not doing any harm to, you know, democracy as I see it. So you can get into that debate. Uh, so I think that's the other kind of uh, ideology tension that I see between how ent social enterprises are set up and, uh, you know, private businesses are set up. And the third, I think, which is more a technical one, uh, which is where the delivery focuses and obviously uh, you know uh, for profit private businesses kind of flow uh, with the capital to private goods uh, and and a lot of times like it's private kind of luxury goods and uh, the you know the solutions of the goods uh, or the applications are oriented towards obviously you know solving the problems of elite or the top 10 20% uh, 
uh, people at max like the top 30 40% inviting the uh, you know uh, middle class as well uh, but i think most of the focus of social enterprises is uh, to solve for public goods or merit public goods you know education health social security uh, which is um, the cause of kind of the most vulnerable citizens who are obviously don't have uh, the ability to pay in the market uh, for uh, you know some of these uh, important uh, uh, you know goods uh, and hence that's where you know, social enterprises focus their energies on yeah um, i think that's yeah. uh, a very very interesting conversation altogether in terms of you know how you how you kind of differentiating them especially on the ideologies bit uh, very interesting examples also that you shared uh, sindhu has a last question i think that she wants to ask sindhu please go ahead hi Uh, sorry for going twice, but um, I have somewhat of a follow-up question to what you said. Uh, you know, a lot of organizations within the development sector, like like uh, Samagra, for example, are coming up with open source tech of their own that can be replicated and used again across the sector. Or uh, can you speak a little bit about how you see that landscape developing and what you do specifically at in this action, in both encouraging and implementing it? Yeah. so one i think like a lot of positive developments in the last 5 years especially i've seen there's a tech for dev community there's a tech for good community in india so i think overall there's there's kind of development of a you know community of you know computer science engineers and you know people interested in technological development or application of technology for developmental problems uh, so that's one kind of you know positive trend i've observed so specifically at intersection uh, you know um, what we try to do uh, is um, you know build either uh, we broadly categorize tech into govtech and civic tech uh, so what i mean by that is govtech is kind of technology platforms or solutions that make kind of government's administrative work you know easier efficient you know more open transparent etc uh, which is a space uh, you know largely samagra is focused on as well and then there's civic tech like you know organization like janagraha re benefit like who are looking at the citizen to government interface and you know make you building platforms so that you know that engagement is actually more open transparent more responsive you know robust etc uh, so uh, uh, i mean intersection uh, approach has been to obviously take a problem first approach uh, and not uh, we look at the problem and say we like you know do we build a tech solution for this problem or do we co build it you know do we buy it from the market or do we borrow it right uh, so those are all the range of options and we are open to all the options so it's not like okay like you know, we need to have you know our imprint on the solution so you know whatever is suitable for that problem statement whether it's you know rt school admissions when we started we realized that there wasn't a solution in the market and hence we had to kind of build it first up and uh, but all our kind of modules are now on the github repository uh, and every new state that we go in we actually encourage uh, kind of the technology departments to not start from scratch like 80 90% of the code is already written so the contextualization needs to happen for that particular state so we handhold that particular state officials for 6 to 12 months so that they actually understand the code and they're able to adapt it to their local context uh, and then uh, we transfer the code um, so that's been the approach on the civic tech side uh, once again we built on a lot of you know open uh, platforms like glyphic uh, which kind of you know tech for dev community has built uh, so glyphic is uh, you can say uh, 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 a platform to kind of you know engage in one to many conversations on using kind of say what whatsapp as a communication channel so we use their apis to build our own workflows uh, for example whether it's engaging with construction workers or with parents who are applying for the children uh, to actually have an asynchronous conversation so in a helpline call 
you know, it's a synchronous conversation, right? You have to connect with the person and you can only kind of engage in uh, that conversation if the other person is available. Uh, but, you know, chatbot does provide for that opportunity to engage with, you know, lots of people asynchronously. So we do use kind of, you know, chatbots uh, powered by Glyphic, which is an open source platform to build our own workflows. And once we build our own workflows, we put it back on GitHub. So, you know, people having a similar use case, you know, for example, we just did a use chatbot for a learning management system for Anganwadi workers across Delhi. So we put that back on GitHub. So if somebody wants to do uh, an intermediary training, like, you know, the Anganwadi chat workers chatbot could be used for Asha workers as well, because the principles are the same. Uh, so yeah, I think in five, 10 years, I feel like, you know, this space will really mature. Uh, and uh, because if you see the government's push as well, the, the government is also trying to push a lot of tech solutions, uh, whether it's, uh, I mean, we can debate a lot about, you know, whether they're making the right tech architecture choices uh, in, in terms of, you know, data privacy, et cetera. But having said that, there is an intent to go digital, uh, you know, from governments as well. So all of this, I think, is converging into a very good space where, you know, the more people get into this space, hotly debate and contest these ideas around privacy, how data needs to be collected, stored, managed uh, and you know utilized uh, it'll be for the better yeah thanks Arun. i really appreciate it i specifically was thinking about the rt school system that you guys had built when i asked the question but uh nice to hear the bigger picture thank you so much yeah. so on that uh, aspect uh, before i ask your next the last question Arun, uh members i also want to let you know that there is a form that denise has put in in the chat box so it's going to take less than two minutes. Fill in the form. Let us know how you feel about the session. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback. Um, Tarun, I'm just going to jump on to the last uh, question over here. You know, you spoke about how in this action you're doing a lot of things, um, specifically right now on the tech aspect. But when you're planning a lot of these, uh, you know, uh, missions, planning a lot of impact that you want to kind of bring in, I want to understand how do you strike that perfect balance between purpose and scale? Because uh, the purpose is big, but you also need to know how do you kind of figure the scale into it. So just your thoughts on that. Thanks. Thanks, Meher. That's definitely, uh, you know, deep philosophical question. So <laughs> one, I think I, I'm lucky. I just got this early advice from a mentor where I exactly had kind of the same, you know, challenge, like, you know, how long, you know, are we going to chase, you know, scale as well. So, uh, you know, uh, the wise person that he was, he said that like, you know, uh, you know, scale the mission and not the organization. And uh, it was uh, a very profound thought um, and which also liberates you. The idea is to not you know, scale in this action as an organization. And, uh, but how do you scale the mission of like, okay, we all agree that, you know, there should be no poverty in India, right? So we all agree that like, you know, what is already constitutionally mandated, you know, should be delivered to vulnerable citizens. Uh, and um, so, you know, given that we actually agree on these two justice principles, uh, you know, how do we actually scale this mission of actually making it happen? So if Indusaction is able to discover those innovative solutions, then it need not be Indusaction's name, uh, right? In whether that's civic, civic tech solution or gov tech solution or a playbook of how to make that campaign happen. So right. uh, I think scaling the mission then, you know, takes you towards a lot of open sourcing, uh, you know, what you've discovered. So and that your pursuit should be on like, okay, how do I actually solve the problem once and, and make sure in a development standard, when I solve the problem once, I'm actually making sure that I'm documenting it for posterity and for other people to, you know, take it and, you know, do it their own way. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, scale, scale the mission and not the organization. So then <laughs> it becomes easier, uh, you know, to keep, to keep be driven by the purpose and uh, yeah. not worry about some of the pressures definitely scale brings. Yeah. 
So uh, I'll add a quick note on that. The other book that has influenced me on this is Tribal Leadership. Uh, and the essential premise of that book is, you know, our brains have very limited capacity to have intimate relationships. And, uh, you know, Dunbar number is 150, but the book actually argues that, you know, great change actually happens in tribes of 20 people. So because that's the limit our brains have to have, you know, uh, intimate professional relationships. So they argue that, like, you know, if you want to make great teams, like, you know, don't go beyond 20 people. So we're already two and a half times that we're a 50 member team. So we're really testing the limits of our intimacy. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's my other uh, you know, uh, tip or secret. Yeah. No, thank you. I think uh, I definitely taking back what you said, uh, scale the mission and not the organization. I think that that kind of holds true for uh, anything that any organization may be trying to achieve. Uh, focus on the mission and don't forget what you're trying to achieve at the end of the day. Um, this also brings us to the end of the session, Tarun. Thank you so much. I think this has been super insightful. Loved how you shared your journey. Loved how you kind of um, shown exactly what Indus Action is doing. And through that entire space uh, also led us to a lot of insightful actions. Uh, members, you guys are great. Thank you so much for joining us on a Wednesday evening. And we're going to see you very soon. Thank you so much, Tarun, again. Thank you, Meher. Thank you, everyone, for uh, your wonderful question on Wednesday evening. So, yeah, uh, I mean, if you have any follow-up questions, uh, I mean, I'm available on my intersection ID. It's just first name at intersection.org. I'm happy to share all the book references as well. Um, yeah, feel free to reach out to me. Yeah. We'll do that for sure, Tarun. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Thank Tarun. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.